0: Hello, my name is Nicole Vagakis. I live in a mobile home park in Vineland, New Jersey. Hello, this is Joellen. I'm calling from Colorado.
1: Hello, my name is Bob from Southern Indiana.
0: I've lived here for 25 years. They want to increase our rent by 20% this month. I choose to live in a trailer park, but many of my neighbors have no other options because housing is so expensive where we are.
1: My mother-in-law lives in a trailer park that was just bought by a company in Montana,
0: I'm not quite sure who the new owners are. It's kind of buried under corporations made in Delaware.
1: My lot rent has increased 8% a year. And her lot rent went from 325 a month to 475 a month.
2: Thanks in large part to the pandemic, the cost of a house is soaring to new heights. In March, the median American home price hit a record high of more than $370,000. Enter one option for more affordable housing, the mobile home. Around 22 million Americans live in a mobile or pre-manufactured home. It's the largest sector of non-subsidized affordable housing in the country. But now investors have turned their attention to these homes, and they've been scooping up parks during the pandemic. New ownership from out-of-state investors has meant restrictive rules, price hikes, and sometimes even eviction. Mobile home residents have few rights or protections, leaving them particularly vulnerable to buyouts. After the break, we'll get into the impact of these new ownerships and hear from some of you about your experiences. I'm David Gura, in for Jen White. You're listening to the 1A podcast, where we get to the heart of the story. Remember to join future conversations, download our 1A Vox Pop app and leave us a voicemail. This message comes from NPR sponsor, BetterHelp. Stress shows up in all kinds of ways. In a world that's telling you to do more, sleep less, and grind all the time, here's your reminder to take care of yourself, do less, and maybe try some therapy. BetterHelp is committed to helping you in times of stress with customized online therapy. Get 10% off your first month at betterhelp.com slash 1A and see if it helps life feel a little bit easier. We're discussing mobile homes and affordable housing. Joining our discussion is director and producer Sarah Terry. She's made a feature-length documentary about all this called A Decent Home. Sarah, welcome.
3: Hi, thanks for having me.
2: And Sarah's here along with Esther Sullivan. Esther's a professor of sociology at the University of Colorado, Denver. She's also author of the book Manufactured Insecurity, Mobile Home Parks, and Americans' Tenuous Right, Right to Place. Esther, thanks very much for your time.
0: Thank you for having me.
2: Esther, let me start, if I could, just with, um, with the definition here. What are we talking about when we say mobile home?
0: Yes, well, while we commonly call these homes mobile homes, really that's a misnomer. And while they were initially called mobile homes and meant to be transferable from place to place, any home that's manufactured after 1976 is technically a manufactured home. And that really shows that these homes are meant to be transferable one time from the factory, where they're prefabricated, to the site of installation. After that, they really can't be moved, or it's exorbitantly expensive, $10,000, $15,000 to move these homes. So they're manufactured, prefabricated in a factory, and that's really where the cost savings comes from. It makes them about half the price to build as a site-built home.
2: Sarah, you became interested uh, in this subject when you read an article uh, in a newspaper, and um, I, that was several years ago, and there was at that time sort of surging interest among investors and private equity firms in in mobile home parks. What explains their interest?
3: Well, um, I started the film back in 2015 when I read an article in The Guardian that included among its little facts that the Carlyle Group, one of the largest private equity firms in the world, was starting to buy up mobile home parks. And the entire private equity world was watching to see what happened. And since that time, of course, there's been a tsunami of purchases of mobile home parks in America by private equity firms. And it's a classic private equity space. They look for vacuums of capital. And mobile home parks... Um, although mobile homes be actually began as playthings for the wealthy when when cars you know were first made and there was no place to stay on the road, its origins are in wealth. But mobile home parks became you know this livable, affordable space, and they were run by mom and pops, and the the priority there was like. I'm charging you a fair rent, so we're making a fair living. And, you know, you're having a place to stay with your home. There was a lot of goodwill in general among park owners and residents. But once you started hitting the second and third generation of those families, quite often the relatives who inherited parks just weren't interested, um, but were very interested in being able to get high prices for their parks, which is where that marriage of, you know, sales and private equity
2: uh, came in. Sarah, help us understand just the economics of mobile home parks, how they work. You mentioned rent just a moment ago.
3: Sure. So sort of heartbreaking thing for me in, you know, working on this was that, so people who live in mobile home parks generally own their homes and those homes could have cost them anywhere from, you know, $10,000 to, you know, two or $300,000. It's, it's a It's the the source of housing that they can afford. It's also a source of housing that we have othered for years in our culture. And that's why I think these residents have been so vulnerable because we haven't cared. But they they own their homes, but they pay rent for the land that they live on. And that's the vulnerability. You heard one of your callers in that wonderful montage at the top of the show talk about, oh, my lot rent went from 325 to 475. And maybe somebody who has a mortgage payment of $2,000 a month or more these days would think, well, that's not very much. It's $150. But you have to look at the equivalencies involved here. That's like a, I can't even do the math, I don't know, a a, a 60% increase on the lot rent. So imagine if your mortgage payment was increased by 60%. Could you survive? You know, this is a conversation that we have to have in America about home and healthy communities, and whether we see homes as places that communities need for people to thrive and survive, or whether we see homes as commodities that can be bought and sold to the highest bidder, because that's the vacuum private equity is working in right now, because that's what we're allowing to happen.
2: Esther Sullivan, I'd love to hear from you on this point, and, and Sarah mentioning the sort of othering of mobile home parks that's happened here in, in this country. Talk a bit, if you would, about how they're regarded and how that has uh, amplified some of the difficulties, the financial and economic difficulties these places have faced.
0: We've really had about 100 years of... Of planning policies and uh, regulatory practices that exclude and marginalize this housing stock. So while manufactured housing started as as true mobile homes that were campers for for the wealthy who could afford a car uh, and and a towable home, they soon became housing of of last resort for those moving during the Dust Bowl, in search of work. And as they consolidated these homes into encampments of permanent affordable housing, we saw just a a boom of regulatory practices across cities and municipalities in the United States that worked to exclude them. So today, as a product of this kind of century of regulatory exclusion most ma- most cities and jurisdictions have laws on the books or planning policies ordinances that require that manufactured housing not be located near site built housing so it's segregated from the rest of the housing stock both both owned and rented. And it's disproportionately placed in commercial and industrial zones. So it's kind of zoned out of residential space mm-hmm. and placed into commercial and industrial areas. What does that do? That kind of removes it from site so that it's not kind of part of many people's Housing universe, um the the spaces that the, the residential spaces that they're seeing every day. And it also kind of exposes these residents to both environmental harms but also the growth and development that's happening in cities mm-hmm. all over the country,
2: Sarah, I'd love to know sort of what happens after an investor buys one of these mobile home parks. I know it's hard to generalize, but um, what what usually happens when when uh, one of these private equity investors comes in and, and takes over this land?
3: Well, uh, you know I don't think it's an understatement to say that they wreak havoc on the stability of the park that they buy. Um, I've filmed across the country in parks all across the United States, and um, literally the first step um, a, a new owner makes is to raise the lot rent. Like it, it that's textbook. There's a place called Mobile Home University. World mobile Home Park owner one of the largest in the United States not, not an accredited
2: uh, not an accredited University
3: you know yeah the mobile home University that was where I first you know came on to the story it was the first shoot I did for the film he um, teaches residents like that's the first thing you do and then you cut out amenities he's like drain the pool cut the trees mm. you know don't, cut anything that is your cost and you know it's also worth noting here, because this gets lost in the conversation, um, when private equity firms come in and justify raising lot rents because of what um, the average rentals you know, are in a, in a community, they're making a false equivalency. They're saying that it's the same price you know, for a, an apartment dweller as it is for a mobile homeowner. Yet the mobile homeowner owns their home and pays for all the upkeep, which is what an apartment you know building owner would do um, and in a mobile home park, the new owner is only responsible for sort of the upkeep of the roads and things so so there's a there's a vast difference when they try to say, oh we have to raise lot rents so that they're equivalent to rentals in the city because they're not and um, what happens for many residents is well if it's there's increasingly um, a population of Spanish-speaking residents who often don't see that the, the you know, signs have been posted or that there's been a change in mm-hmm. ownership or that they owe more money, so they need advocates. There are residents who form homeowners associations and f- start fighting back with all they've got. Uh, Iowa is an example of that. Um, you know, Colorado has been an example of that. Um, and then there are other people who, who are still desperately trying to find, you know, help to address the, the predators sure. who come in.
2: I'm going to bring in a new voice here, Candy Evans, who's the co-founder of the Iowa Manufactured Home Residents Association, also a current resident at the Gulf View Mobile Home Park in Iowa, featured uh, in Sarah's film, I should say. Candy, thank you very much for being here. I appreciate it.
1: Thank you for having me.
2: I want to ask you first, uh, we see your story play out in Sarah's documentary, as I mentioned, but take us back to the beginning and... and how did you find your place in this park, and and, and uh, why did you decide to, to move to mobile home park now more than a quarter century ago?
1: My husband and I moved here 20, 22 years ago, 24 years ago now. We decided to buy a manufactured home. It would fit within our budget. Um, we could have a nest egg for the future, not be dependent on the government or our children. It was affordable for us. That's why we moved into affordable housing um we uh he passed away, and I continued to stay here mm. in a nineteen or two thousand and excuse me two thousand and nineteen. I retired in January in March of two thousand and nineteen. I found a notice taped to my door that we had been purchased by a private equity group that you've been speaking of um and this group was at that time called Haven Park Capital. Mm-hmm. They notified us that our rent would be increasing by 61% within two months. First of June, it was supposed to go up. So it left, left us no choice but to organize and try and fight back. Our park is mainly composed of um, elderly on a fixed income, uh, disabled, uh, retired veterans that are disabled, uh, single families or single single parent families
3: mm-hmm.
1: and low low income individuals um so there some of most of these people are on either fixed or low income so there was no way to absorb sixty one percent initially we probably lost between twenty and thirty families they just some of them left their homes um some of them sold them for almost nothing five hundred dollars. Okay homes that were valued at thirty or 40000 just to get out of here. Um, this private equity group came in and they took our community. They enforced new rules, no swing sets for children, no wading pools for babies, no basketball hoops for the young teens. I mean, they took our family community and they turned it into nothing but a cash cow.
2: Mm.
1: We were nothing more than dollar signs on lot numbers.
2: And I want to bring in another perspective now. Andy Conlin is the executive director of the Iowa Manufactured Housing Association, a group that represents landlords of mobile home parks. Andy, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, David. Currently there's a bill heading to the Iowa governor's desk, I understand, that requires a landlord to give 90 days notice instead of 60 days for rent, utility increases or for terminating a lease. Your association supports that bill, I gather, but I know that residents like Candy have been vocal that this bill doesn't do enough. We were hearing about timing just a moment ago. What are the main sticking points when it comes to, to residents and landlords in this issue of timing?
4: First of all, I appreciate you having us on and, and giving us the opportunity to to share our perspective. I do want to just level set on a couple of things before I go into the details on the bill that I think are really important. Because the reality is that nationwide, only about 7% of, of housing units and in in dwelling units in the country are manufactured housing. But, so a lot of people don't have this experience. But at the same time, 7% is a big number and there are a lot of folks in, in, in those types of communities. Mm-hmm. So when you're talking about a manufactured housing community, they're not like a typical residential neighborhood that you drive by. These communities are single plots of land owned by a mom and pop, a corporation, some type of entity, and that entity is responsible for all of the operations inside that plot of land. So that includes maintaining the roads, sidewalks, other Sure. When local governments have situations where they're trying to upgrade infrastructure like that, they either bond or they tax. So that's why you see folks um, with their, their property taxes going up around the country. The reality is, is those opportunities aren't available to the people who own these plots of land that manufactured housing communities are on. And I would say with regard to, to streets, these are, these are really expensive ventures. Sure. If you haven't you know, put in a street before, you wouldn't know how expensive these things really are. Uh,
2: and yeah, so bearing all of that in mind, I just, I'd love for you to get to that question just about timing because I know that this is sort of the policy linchpin on which a lot of this, this hinges. Um, where is the disagreement when it comes to the issue of notice? I think one of, the, one of the issues when it comes to
4: notice is you need to balance the ability of manufactured housing community owners to manage their communities in a way that makes sense. But at the same time, make sure um, folks who live in these communities have enough notice when there's a rent increase to um, adjust, make whatever adjustments they need to do. And that's why our association was proud to support a bill. Um, that increased that timeline to 90 days, which is one of the longest in, in the country, certainly in this region. Um, so that was something that was very important to a, a group of legislators here in Iowa, who, who want to reach out and protect tenants, um, to the extent that it makes sense. And so um, we were happy to, to support that provision.
2: I wonder how many of the, the, the folks that you represent, organizations you represent are based there in Iowa. I, you know, we were talking earlier about the Carlisle Group that is headquartered um, several thousand miles away from, from, from Iowa. Um, how much is this a phenomenon and how is that complicated things, just not having the owners of these parks in the states where these parks are located?
4: I would say two pieces. I would say one, um, this association here in Iowa, the Iowa Manufactured Housing Association, was really built on the, on the backs of mom and pop operators. So the vast majority of our members are, are still mom and pop operators. I would say that we do have a number of, of entities that are, are, are purchasing communities. So they're Uh, part of our membership too. But I would say that one of the things that has been really nice about those types of groups is they've been actively engaged with the association. They've taken our feedback. Uh, There was a situation that really kind of ignited this fight here in Iowa in 2019, where um, an out-of-state operator tried to implement a pretty significant rent hike. Uh, The association stepped in encourage them to hold community meetings with tenant groups, listen to their tenants. And ultimately, that rent increase was stretched out over three years. So um, these
2: folks have been actively engaged with us. And
4: in in my experience, they've they've really worked hard to be good
2: actors. We're talking about the fate of America's mobile home parks. We'll be back with more in just a moment. A reminder to have your questions answered on future topics or to just let us know what you think. Tweet us at 1A. Let's get back to our conversation on the trend of private equity firms buying up mobile home parks. Last week, a viral video from TikTok user Cody Kin laid out a set of strict new rules a private equity firm had placed on his Montana mobile home park. Kinn told us more about it in an audio message.
4: They said that if we do not take care of the lawn, that they will pay a contractor to take care of it for us and that they will add it to our rent bill. Also, you're not allowed to work on your vehicles for uh, overnight. You can't leave it on blocks. Um, it has to be running and apparently these uh, rich guys have never had to work on their own stuff before. All new fences are not allowed. That's prohibited. You cannot put a new fence up. I don't know what they're going to deem as good condition, but I have a feeling we're going to have to fix some fences. And um, people are probably going to have a hard time paying for that. If we're forced to make some changes, I'm going to try to raise the money so I can help. And uh, they have three other, I think actually three total trailer courts and billings. So they're probably going to need help too.
2: Andy Conlon, I want to ask you about this and also what Sarah Terry said just a few moments ago about what happens often after an investor or private equity firm comes in and buys one of these properties. There is this laundry list of changes that are made, rules that are put in place, arguably draconian rules. And I wonder how owners reconcile these demands, these new demands with their residents who are, as we heard, they're often struggling financially.
4: I, I think that's a great question. Let me let me start with. I, I'm not a TikTok guy, so I, I have not Fair seen that TikTok. Fair enough. Um, but so I, I can't speak to the specifics of it. But I, I will say this: I think one of the, what we advise our members to do is, if you are a, a, a group, whether you're in state, out of state, mom and pop, or a corporation who buys a community. We think the most important first thing you can do is engage with your residents. Um, one of the things I heard earlier in this conversation was that the the first thing these, these groups do when they buy a community is raise rent. Well, I, I've got a member who's bought several in this state in the last, oh, gosh, 18 months. And they haven't raised rent at any of their communities. And they've been doing nothing but engaging and listening. Is,
2: is that an, an outlier to... move? Is, is that something you would attribute to the pandemic in specific? Is, is that something that you would you would argue is, is, is rather universal? No,
4: I, I don't think. I don't think it has anything to do with the pandemic. I
2: certainly can't speak for every sale
4: that's ever happened either in the state of Iowa or nationally. But anecdotally, and I understand that the plural of anecdote is not data, um, that's the experience that, that we've had in the last, um, last year and a half or so. Um, so I, would, you know, I think from our perspective, it's re- we really encourage our members to, to go through a process of listening to the, the folks who live in these communities. Um, one, to make sure everybody's got a good understanding of why potential changes are coming. But two, after listening to the, to, to the folks who live in these communities, maybe an owner, owner operator may say, hey, you know, this, this rule here, that maybe we'll, we'll pass on that for a little while because it just doesn't make sense in this community.
2: Andy, that's your, your prescription. Um, I wonder how much that's been happening. So you mentioned that it's happened over these last 18 months in, in a handful of, of communities. Are you, are you talking prescriptively here? Or are you acknowledging perhaps that this has not been the most robust dialogue between new owners of these, of these parks and the residents there?
4: I would certainly concede that, that some of these communication loops haven't been as open as, as they needed to be in some of these situations. In fact, I think I, think I, have, I have members who would concede that as well. Um, but I do think that a lot of these folks ha- on, on the owner-operator side are, are really interested in hearing what their, their residents have to say and, and trying to formulate rules that make sense. And, and I would certainly encourage that as a best practice. Let me also – I just want to just sure. touch briefly on um, – as you, as you asked, what, what happens when a, a new owner-operator comes into a community? And I want to just politely push back on a, a couple of pieces. I think, one, um, some of these folks, when they, when they come into these states, aren't necessarily buying the, the most well-kept communities um, in the state or in the, in the region. Um, that, that certainly hasn't been in our experience. The, the vast majority of these communities were built initially 30, 40, 50 years ago. Many of them um, don't have lot rent rates that kept up with the market around them, and I'm not talking about with uh, single family homes or apartments, I'm talking about with other manufactured housing communities. And I think on top of that, a lot of these communities haven't necessarily seen the infrastructure investment that, um, that, that they probably deserved over the years. So um, one of the things that we encourage our members to do as well when they come into one of these communities, and this co- goes back to communication as well, it's so important that these community owners are talking to their residents about what types of infrastructure upgrades they're doing. There was a situation that, that we heard about at the Iowa Capitol when we were talking about the uh, Manufactured Housing uh, Reform Bill that passed this year. And um, you know we would hear from tenant groups, these, these legislators would hear from tenant groups that there are these communities where no um, infrastructure improvements were made, but they didn't realize that the owner-operator had made a really significant investment, for example, in the um, electrical grid on the property. Mm. That's something that tenant groups wouldn't necessarily see, wouldn't necessarily be aware of, and it's incumbent on the owner-operators to make sure
2: people know that. Sarah Terry, I want to turn to you, and at the center of your documentary is a community in Aurora, Colorado, the Denver Meadows Mobile Home Park. Perhaps Esther's driven by it down down 225 and, and, and seen the space as well. I don't want to give too much away about the course of, of the documentary, but there's there's a fight for this property. And, and one of the things that comes up is sort of what happens to the residents who stay, who aren't able to leave of their own accord, can't find another place to live and uh, really fought this. And um, I wonder if you could just talk about that conversation when you have people who um, are not on very sound financial footing, can't move easily, uh, as we talked about at the top of the show about the misnomer of mobile homes, can't move the, the home itself. What recourse is left for them? Uh, what recourse was left for them in Aurora? What recourse is left for residents of these communities generally when this happens and um, there there is this impasse with the new ownership?
3: That's a great question, and it's been a great conversation. Um, so generally, there are no recourses. It, there are only a handful of states um, in the country that have um, any kind of protection for park residents. There are often, like, supposedly like a mobile home park, you know, board where you can complain. But if with if those boards don't have um, regulatory teeth in them, like, so the state won't step in and do anything. The burden is on the residents to, you know, hire a lawyer, uh, bring a case, and and that's what happened in Colorado. There were no protections in the state. And this was an amazing income, a, a community of low income Spanish, mostly Spanish speaking residents, working two and three jobs. Who you see in the film, they rose up at the community level. They got assistance from an activist group called Nine to Five. There were lawyers who came in to work with them pro bono. But this community showed up at the Aurora City Council meetings, which at that time had an abundance of developers mm-hmm. on the council, people with real estate backgrounds, and they fought every step of the way. And they made, you know, there was there was a hold put on the the rezoning of the property. That was the issue in this case. Uh, they. Like you, I don't want to give too much away about the film. But I want you to know that because of those residents, Colorado and their fight and what they went through, Colorado is now like one of the top five or six states in the country with at least some measure of protection for residents. It's because of that community, and it's because of them insisting that we write a different narrative. And it also triggered a local city council election where people ran against mm. sort of the slate of developers that were on the council and led to a new era in the city council in Aurora.
2: Sarah, Terry, we got an email from Mike. He writes, there's an exit strategy for community owners that's a win for everyone involved, resident ownership. Uh, I know that there are nonprofits now working to train uh, and finance co-ops. Um, this has caught on in a number of these these mobile home communities. How often do you see that happening? How often do you see that working? And as you look ahead uh, to what the future holds, how how integral is this going to be? This kind of um, nonprofit organized organization of these communities.
3: It's kind of a David versus Goliath battle at the moment. The the leading national um, nonprofit working in this um, space is called Rock USA, and they have helped. Nearly 300 um, parks residents organize as co ops and buy the parks they live in. And we're talking about buying them at market rates. You know, they're competing with other um, investors to buy the parks. And there has never been a default on um, a loan that um, has been made to one of those parks. So it's an outstanding track record. But that's in the face of. You know, there's an estimated between forty five and fifty thousand mobile home parks in the United States, and the access that private equity um, and Wall Street has to financial resources, even from Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, outstrips what these um, what's available to these these types of nonprofit um, co op purchases. There are other options. There are cities who. Um, own land as a community trust, mm-hmm. and uh, let mobile home parks be there in sort of in perpetuity or on a hundred year lease as an intentional part of that city's desire to create an affordable housing stock in their communities. Those are pretty healthy cities I think that recognize that a, a healthy community needs that you know variety of housing stock um, I mean in some ways I don't know you, you kind of look at it and go. Wow, this is depressing because because of that David versus Goliath um you know issue going on but I think that I take great heart in the possibility of rewriting a narrative mm-hmm. for America that says we care about homes, all kinds of homes, and we care about people more than we care You know about money. I mean, the question the film asks is whose dream are we serving? And I think that's something we have to really consider today and to be led in many ways by what these mobile home park residents are doing.
2: The film is a decent home. Sarah Terry is the director and producer of it. Thank you very much for your time today, Sarah. Thanks to Esther Sullivan as well, professor of sociology at the University of Colorado Denver, the author of the book Manufactured Insecurity, Mobile Home Parks and Americans' Tenuous Right to Place. Today's producer is Michelle Harvin. The program comes to you from WAMU, which is part of American University in Washington. It's distributed by NPR. I'm David Gura. Let's talk more soon. This is 1A.